Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic and this is Father John Arnold. I was recently talking to a young man who said that he left the Catholic Church and was now an agnostic. So I asked him to explain to me exactly the nature of the God that he did not believe in. He fell quiet. He wouldn't say anything. I said, because do you not believe in Zeus? Is that the God you don't believe in? Crickets. Do you not believe that your car is your God? Crickets. What exactly is the God you say you don't believe in? He had no idea. I think so much of atheism and agnosticism comes from that problem. They do not understand what it is they're rejecting. But we have to recognize that the Christian gospel says some things about the role of God in the world and his intervention in the world, which is pretty startling. And so what about atheism, agnosticism, and the virgin birth? of our Lord Jesus Christ. That and a little bit more this week on Oro Valley Catholic. And so here's a little bit more. When's the last time you thought about grace? Catholics think about grace in two ways, actual grace and sanctifying grace. So your kids say to you, your friends say to you, why do I go to church? I can meet God, just pick the coffee shop, uh, you know, the cathedral of the mountain canyon, wherever it is that they find the sacred. But sanctifying grace is something that participates in the nature of God that comes to us through the sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, the source and summit of Christian faith, um, sacrament of reconciliation, the uh, healing of the sick, what we used to call last rites, but the, uh, the anointing of the sick, and of course, marriage and holy orders, the seven sacraments. But we even talk about things like the Catholic Church being sacramental, this visible sign of an unseen reality. Sanctifying grace comes to us through the sacraments, and it works on us to transform us, to recreate us. Um, it really emphasizes our connectedness to one another, uh, and the importance of uh, participating in the sacraments. And no, you, you do not get sanctifying grace by having a cup of coffee at Starbucks. That just has never been the promise of Christ. However, grace does work outside of the sacraments and often what we call actual grace. How about a young woman that discovers a love for the Catholic Church and reads her way into the church? We'd say that is actual grace. God working on the soul of that woman even before she's come to faith. So we'd call that as one species of, um, of actual grace, prevenient grace, the grace that brings you to belief in the first place. So when we talk about the virgin birth, this is what the gospel is about this weekend. Here we are coming up to the Christmas season. Uh, what is happening in the world when a simple girl, maybe 14 or 15 years old, uh, spontaneously becomes pregnant, um, gives birth to a son, and that son is Jesus Christ. And so what I would say about all of it, it's my basic uh, approach uh, to Christianity, is I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And I say, in for a nickel, in for a dime. I want to hear the whole story. Because what's being told to you is who God is. You can reason to God just through 
um, the use of, of the human capacity for reason, you know, that there is something more than materiality in the world. Um, the idea that things, uh, the argument from contingency, that everything in the world comes in and out of being. If you did a time-lapse uh, film of the Catalina Mountains, you'd see them, and you, fa you fast-forward it, you see them build up, you see them tear down, and you see the whole planet go away. Um, everything just is like foam in some, um, well, I guess scientists would say this expression of this quantum field. Um, Carlo Rovelli, who's an atheist and a physicist, uh, he was basically channeling Aristotle. He said that everything in reality, the hum human person, uh, the planet Earth, the sun, it's like there's this huge quantum field and occasionally it takes this form of the sun, of uh, the earth, uh, the mountains, uh, John Arnold, and then uh, just as quickly disappears. But the quantum field remains. He says it's like the ocean and a wave in the ocean. Yeah, the wave rises, the wave goes away, but the ocean remains. Still, we wouldn't say that in itself is God. What we would say is that the basis for anything possibly to exist, including quantum fields, gravity, whatever fundamental reality um, you want to talk about, it's all something that is contingent in nature. And so there must necessarily be something whose purpose it is, is simply to be, to exist. It's like what the burning bush said to Moses in the book of Exodus. Um, when Moses asks his name, he says, I am who I am. So that God that expresses himself through all these, as Aquinas would say, secondary causes in reality, somehow figured in the entire plan that Mary, this virgin in the first century AD, was going to bear the new Adam and that she would be the new Eve. I've talked about this before. And so she was around after Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. Remember, the Acts of the Apostles says she's in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes down on all the apostles, and they experienced what she'd experienced 33-plus uh, years before. And so that she told the story to the apostles, this makes perfect sense about the birth of Jesus. Because if that or something very like that didn't happen, why the world would you make it up? I mean, it's tough enough if for the early church who was talking to people already believed in life after death. They believed it was disembodied life, or some believed in transmigration of souls, uh, where you'd go into a lower or a higher order of being. Others believed in Sheol or Hades, which is this place that was just, uh, you didn't want to be there, but this is what death was to think that Jesus rose from the dead with his wounds and that we would be one in God. What good news. But the story of the virgin birth, what if you just skipped over it? What does it really have to do with the entire story of Jesus' birth? You know, St. Irenaeus was one of the people who thought it really was the incarnation of Jesus, that is, being conceived in the womb of uh, the Blessed Virgin. He said, that's what saved the world. We talk about the cross because Jesus focuses on the cross. 
where he enters into the reality of human suffering. And so it's this big answer to uh, how can a God uh, who is love, how can that God allow children to suffer? And the answer is the cross. Uh, God is in it all. And somehow the redemption of the world is mysteriously working through all this suffering. But St. Irenaeus would say, um, that started in the, in the conception. He entered into the human uh, condition in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there is a, a point to it that's very important to understand that Christ redeems our life from the moment of conception to the moment of our death and beyond. But if it's not true, if they made it up, why in the world would you do that? Because in the pagan world, they already had stories of gods uh, having sex with virgins and, and having babies. I mean, the Greeks and the Romans uh, gods were a lusty bunch. The female gods uh, like Venus and Aphrodite had sex with, a traffic, uh, with attractive males, human males, and the Greek gods, Zeus and um, the rest of them, uh, were always on the lookout for an attractive farmer's daughter. They're really a corrupt, uh, twisted bunch. One of the stories that I've always liked is in Ovid's Metamorphoses, which was written, I think, right around 44 BC. And he really picks up all of this Greek, um, this Greek mythology that comes from Hesiod. Uh, but Ovid's a really a good writer. He has kind of a wit to it. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, story about the myths. It's what gets him in trouble with the, uh, the Emperor Augustus because the Emperor Augustus wanted the myths to be taken seriously. And Ovid kind of made fun of him. Uh, well, one of the, uh, the stories he tells is the rape of Europa, if you've never heard the story. Zeus notices this daughter who's herding cows and uh, says, wow, I, I like her. So he decides to become a bull, a creamy white bull, and he mingles in with the herd. Then he nuzzles her, plays with her, rubs up against her, gets her to like him, gets her to mount on his back. He rides her around. And then he goes into the ocean and swims away. And most of the paintings you see of the rape of Europa is her horrified look as her homeland goes, goes away. He takes her to the island of Crete, where, and this is always the truth about Greek and Roman myths, not much difference between rape and seduction. It's the old story, you know, about a six-pack embrace yourself. This is the Greek story of what sexual relations between men and women are like, specifically between gods and, uh, and women. And so Europa uh, gives birth and, uh, by Zeus, and she gives birth to Minos. If you remember, he's the uh, king of Greek, Greece, he, I mean of Crete, uh, this ancient Minoan civilization that so much of Greek culture comes from. Sarpedon is a child by Zeus. He is killed on the battlefield in the Iliad. And so Europa is this kind of important female, human female figure in, uh, in Greek mythology. Um, but she has the children of gods and they're kind of half God, half human being. And you see it uh, come up in the, in the big arguments about Arianism, if you remember that Bishop Arius. And he was basically proposing something which uh, the Greek and Latin world already believed at some level, at least in the common people, 
that gods come down to heaven, they have sex with human women, and you get somebody who's like a demigod, like Hercules or Sarpedon or Minos. Uh, they have room for them in their understanding. But the story that the Christians tell is specifically Christian. It's that he's not half God and half man, like Hercules, Sarpedon, and Minos. He's one completely whatever God is and completely whatever a human being is, absent sin. And this is the image of what awaits you and I, why we're concerned about sanctifying grace. God does something to transform himself and share his divinity with us. Christ took on our humanity so that we might share in his divinity. So there's the prayer that the priest says at the Eucharist, the priest, as he's pouring water into the wine, he says, by the mingling of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself uh, to share in our humanity. And so we're going to take a little bit and talk about the virgin birth in the context of the Greek world. We're going to talk about the background um, about from Isaiah 7, which is the first reading for this weekend, and just... Look at the mystery described by the scriptures because it's beautiful and it's the reason we love our Blessed Lady. And if you can't get why Catholics for centuries have been devoted to this one person who William Wordsworth called our, uh, our nature's solitary boast, our Blessed Lady, let's turn and talk about the scriptures and the virgin birth. So I spent a little time talking to about the rape of Europa, and you get the sensuality of this creamy white bull um, apparently transforming into a human figure and then um, basically raping Europa and giving her these children. And um, you're expected to believe that women like this in the ancient world. You know, that myth uh, continues on into the present. God bless women. But the answer to it is this story um, which stands up for the dignity of women, the inherent dignity of women. And it's about our Blessed Lady, and it's one of the reasons why we should love her and be devoted to her and understand um, how this story transforms the nature of, um, of our devotion uh, to the Queen of all the saints. Because the story told in Luke 1, the announcement of the birth of Jesus, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and she will conceive a son and he'll be named Jesus, a name which literally means God saves. Um, whatever this is, as you listen to the story, ask yourself how this is exactly the opposite of whatever rape and seduction it is. this is. This is not romance either. This is nothing like this. This is God encountering a human person who with her whole heart and soul wants to be open to God. So here's the story starting at uh, Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. 
Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. You will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Now that is written by Luke. And Luke is a Greek. And so he doesn't have the Hebrew background. But he does have the story, the whole background of, um, of uh, the, the Greek myths. And so the angel comes to her. He tells her God's will. And Mary cooperates with the will of God. And this is what uh, freedom is. Uh, freedom is just participating in God's world. People say, could Mary have said no? Well, Eve said no. Uh, and this story is the exact mirror opposite of the story of Adam and Eve, how it is that Eve fell. Um, but imagine in your own life, abandonment to divine providence is how it comes down to our Catholic spirituality. You just open yourself and give yourself completely to God. Matthew likes to go back um, and he talks about the same story. He talks about it not from Mary's perspective, but from Joseph's perspective. Paul says merely that Jesus is born of a woman. He doesn't get into the story. Presumably, it was in the Pauline preaching because you don't really have the gospel um, in, um, in Paul's letters that survive. The, the gospel that Paul preached is the gospel that's recorded by Luke, which we just had that reading from. But Matthew is the gospel that was written in Hebrew, and probably, tra and we know translated into Greek, probably written in Hebrew, I should have said. Um, but Matthew likes to quote back to Isaiah 7, and he says that there's this sign. Therefore the Lord himself will give you this sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. That comes out of this larger reading, where Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz, who is not so hot a king. He's made a deal with the Assyrians. He's actually agreed that he'll do child sacrifice. And he actually sacrifices his own child um, to the, to the uh, Assyrian gods. He tears down Yahweh's altar in the Jerusalem temple and erects this uh, uh, altar to Moloch, um, or the, the equivalent of Moloch, who just demands um, children be sacrificed. Isn't it true that there's just something... Uh, in reality, that wants the death of uh, babies, uh, we still struggle with it. But here's how Isaiah couches this whole thing uh, about this virgin birth in the 8th century BC. The Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. 
Let it be deep as the netherworld or high as the sky. But Ahab has answered, I will not ask. I will not tempt the Lord. Uh, then Isaiah said, Listen, O house of David, is it not enough for you to weary people? Must you also weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you this sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So Matthew quotes back and says, because he's very concerned about the fulfillment of prophecy, that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And my point of bringing up Luke and Matthew is the two different ways that the gospel writers try to deal with this difficult story of the virgin birth. They do not blow it off. They don't pretend that he's just this great person that has been adopted by God as his son because that was another one of the, well, ultimately a heresy, um, that was proposed in the early church because they kept coming up with stories that were supposed to be believable. Uh, but a virgin birth to people who have heard the rape of Europa or Zeus and, and Hercules' mom, there's just all sorts of this stuff in these, uh, these weird uh, rape-oriented myths of the ancient world. Um, but you do this, have this story instead where this, this young woman um, who may well have been from an Essene community, uh, but obviously a deeply, profoundly religious young woman who was willing to open herself uh, to the mystery of God. You know, it's funny, when I was thinking about being a priest, I met with this uh, great Jesuit, he's dead now, John Enright, super guy. And I was really struggling, trying to decide um, you know, whether or not I was going to go through with all this. And I just have to tell you, so happy I did. But um, he says, John, why don't you do this? Because I like four years of struggling whether or not to leave the practice law and go do this. He says, John, why don't you ask for a sign? Uh, and it's so funny because I know I'd remember listening to this at Christmas. And all I could say is, I will not ask, I will not tempt the Lord my God, is what my response to Father Enright was. And at the time, I didn't understand the irony that I was quoting King Ahaz, who is an awful king. But I thought to myself, oh, St. Therese saved me from it, and I moved on. But I think it's funny, uh, the trouble you get into if you don't understand Scripture. But I wanted to take a little time and talk about Pope Benedict's book, um, about the infancy narratives of Jesus of Nazareth, because he spends quite a lot of time talking about this story about, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call him Emmanuel. And I think it sheds light on Luke's approach to it all, and something about the mystery of God that's presented in that 8th century reading from Isaiah. So I'm reading to you from his book, The Infancy Narratives. Terrific book. Um, but uh, here, is, here is what he has to say. Uh, because uh, people like Bart Ehrman, who you know, wants to make sure you understand that, that Jesus isn't really God. Human beings made him into God after his death. You know, he's a fundamentalist Christian who lost his faith and now makes money tearing down Christianity. There are others like that. But uh, Pope Benedict is so smart. And so he wrote about that passage about the sign is a virgin will conceive. And here's what he said. He talks about another scripture scholar, and he always is quoting Germans. Rudolf Killian, in his commentary on Isaiah, briefly describes the essential attempts that have been made to explain away um, Isaiah 7. 
about the sign of the virgin referring not to something in Ahaz's time, but to the birth of Jesus Christ some eight centuries later. Just the divine nature of prophecy. So he, I'll, I'll just give you his words. He speaks of four principal types of interpretation of this Ahaz passage. The first is this. Emmanuel, God with us, refers to the Messiah, like the priestly Messiah or the kingly Messiah. Yet the idea of the Messiah only reached its fully developed form at the time of the exile, which is about a hundred or more years after Isaiah, and thereafter. Here at most, we would be dealing with an anticipation of this figure. There is nothing contemporary with Isaiah that might correspond to this being about the birth of a Messiah, at least as uh, the, the scriptures thought about the Messiah. So he goes on. The second hypothesis assumes that the God with us is the son of King Ahaz, the evil Ahaz, perhaps Hezekiah, who is kind of a Shlemiel also. A thesis that simply does not add up because these two guys are not worthy of much faith. So the third theory suggests that the virgin will bear a child refers to one of the sons of the prophet Isaiah, both of whom have prophetic names. Shir Jashub, a remnant shall return, not a very hopeful name, or I guess that is the hopeful name, but the one that isn't is the other kid, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Have any of you named your kid the spoil speeds, the prey hastens? But this is the problem of having a prophet who's a dad. But this attempt doesn't add up either because uh, neither one of them seem to be a sign of anything. And finally, the fourth thesis argues for a collective interpretation Emmanuel is the new Israel, and Alma, virgin, as none other than the symbolic figure of Zion. But the context of the prophet in no way points towards a notion of this kind, according to Benedict. And in any event, such a sign could not be historically contemporary. Nothing happened that fulfills this prophecy. It's not like someone wrote, oh, and the prophecy of Isaiah to Ahaz on those there in the palace was fulfilled like only nine months later when so-and-so was born. That never happens. It's this open-ended prophecy is what Pope Benedict is saying. And that when Matthew seizes on it like nine centuries later, it's because he already has the story of the virgin birth and he's looking back into the history of Israel, looking for some clue how this might be related um, to God's will. And, you know, it's what I think is interesting about it is that when you think about God and, and prophecy, you know, it's not for telling the future. You know, when we talk about God knowing the, uh, eternity, it's like he perceives everything all at once. And so when the Spirit of God is speaking, it may come out in a, in a place and time disconnected from when that actual prophecy will be fulfilled. And so I just wanted to leave you with this because I think it's really important, is the church didn't make up the story of the virgin birth because Isaiah 7 says this is a sign. Now, it's the other way around. Mary told the church, the apostles, about the nature of Jesus' birth. They believe her because he's rose, risen from the dead. Go back to my thesis that if you believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead and the ascension in heaven, and that you'll join God in your bodies uh, in this new creation, then the virgin birth is like, you know, in for a nickel, in for a dime. 
It is, does say something about the nature of God so that when we talk to people about the God they don't believe in, we've actually got something to say. So I would like to close this up and I'd like to talk a little bit about devotion to Mary, why we have devotions and why we have sanctifying grace and why all this makes sense in how you live and practice your Catholic faith. Here's one of the essential problems of being a human being. Angry, tired, lonely, bored. Kids are bored. We have so much junk. Why is the practice of faith and connecting with the God who is so important? It's because we enter into the sacrament of the present moment. It's where we meet God. So sanctifying grace and devotion. Actual grace, God's always sending us actual graces in our life. We either respond or we don't. Sanctifying grace, that comes to us through the, through the uh, sacraments, principally baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, but all the sacraments confer sanctifying grace. It's what transforms us. It's how God shares his divinity with us. But devotion, this is something that we do, that God's grace can move it to it, but friends, you have to make a free choice to, to pursue a devotion, whether it's a novena or the rosary or divine mercy, or uh, whatever our devotional life is that's supposed to awaken the love that is in us uh, and direct it to the God that is. And so why pray the rosary? Why Marian devotions? Because she's the great example of a heart that's free and open to God. It's what we should want also. This is Father John Arnold, and this has been one more episode of Oral Valley Catholic.